Thanks for joining Impact Boom. On this episode... We give them lots of power in the program as well. So ordinarily, you think that the adults are going to be the experts and they're going to be the ones that decide what happens next. That's not the way we do it. We turn up with a menu of things that people might like to do and then the young person chooses and then we follow their lead from there. Welcome to impactboom.org. We search the globe to find the people, stories, ideas and inspiration to help you create maximum positive impact. Each week, Impact Boom brings you thought-provoking interviews with world-leading practitioners passionate about creating positive social change. These designers, social entrepreneurs, educators, innovators, thinkers and doers share their projects, initiatives, thoughts and insights on creating a better world. You can find all the stories, links and other great content at impactboom.org. Follow us on Facebook or Twitter for the latest updates or subscribe to the newsletter or on iTunes. Thanks for listening to episode 364 of Impact Boom. My name is Eliana Cruz and I'm passionate about bringing the latest interviews and insights of the Business for Good movement. Today, we're speaking with Graham Pringle. Graham is the training director for Youth Flourish Outdoors Limited a youth mental health charity which is changing the mental health ecology for young people and their families. Youth Flourish Outdoors delivers interventions using adventure therapy. Graham is finishing doctoral research about the practice of adventure therapy for young people and has trained almost 1,000 professionals so far. There is no entry-level pathway in adventure therapy, nor are there cross-training opportunities for existing professionals to become adventure and therapeutical skills. Graham aims to solve this problem by creating courses offered through a registered training organization. On today's podcast, we'll discuss Graham's experience and insight into his work in the non-for-profit space and his key learnings after recently participating in the Impact Boom Elevate Plus Accelerator Program. Graham, thank you very much for joining us today. It's really great to be having this conversation with you. It's my pleasure, and thank you for the introduction. Excellent, Graham. To start off, could you please share a bit about your background and what led you to work in adolescent mental health? Uh, Sure, yeah. My original plan when I left school was to go into teaching, but I didn't like being inside. I then spent 10 years in the army where I was outside a lot, but it wasn't the most fulfilling sorts of roles at that time. So when I left, I retrained in outdoor education, which I thought would allow me to be outdoors with young people again, which was good. Then my wife suggested that we become foster carers, which we did. We did about 12 years of foster care. And as I was doing that, the foster care agency would, of course, ask me to run some camps for them because I'm working in outdoor education. And bit by bit, the two things came together. Some milestones for me were in 2002, I was working uh, my own little business with young people in residential care, doing all this adventure work. And that was working really well, but I was making a bunch of mistakes and couldn't figure out what I was doing wrong. In 2015, we started YFO and I wrote a book 
about the work that we're doing, still trying to understand what is it that makes adventure therapy work and why does it sometimes not go so well. The next milestone will be when I submit my thesis for my PhD on the 28th of February next year. In that, I hope to explain answers to some of those questions I've had for the last 20 years. Amazing. Very interesting trajectory, Graham. Thank you for sharing your story of how you become involved in outdoor therapy. As the board member of Youth Flourish Outdoors, could you please share more about this organization and how it works and the impact it intends to create? So as I mentioned, YFO has been going since 2015 and it's a charity, which might make some of your listeners wonder because this is about social enterprise, but we're not a funded charity. Everything we do is fee for service. Like all social enterprises, I think we live and die by doing a good job and we don't get paid if people don't turn up. So although we're a charity, we don't actually receive charitable funding, etc. So YFO works with young people, but that's 7 to 27 would be the span. And all of the young people we work with have a history of um, adversity in childhood. And that means that for the people we're working with, they have a level of distress attached to those adverse experiences of earlier on. And it turns out to be a whole range of different mental health impacts and also some physical health impacts in our young people as well. So what we try to do is effectively provide the opposite of the sorts of experiences that were harming them when they were young. So when our guys go out to do the work, and a lot of our work is one-to-one. We do groups and we run camps and things, but a lot of the work is one-to-one because our young people generally are not very confident with their peers. So when our guys go out to work with young people and take them on on a little adventure for half a day. The main things they're trying to do is they're trying to get the young person engaged in something healthy. They're trying to give the young person choices so that they can decide for themselves what will happen because no one ever asks a young person if they want to get hurt, which is what happened in the past. So by simply by asking, we're providing some of that different experience. We give them lots of power in the program as well. So ordinarily, you think that the adults are going to be the experts and they're going to be the ones that decide what happens next. That's not the way we do it. We will turn up with a menu of things that people might like to do and then the young person chooses and then we follow their lead from there. We're trying to disempower ourselves as adults and show the young people that they can be uh, in charge and they can be safe and make choices about what the adult is doing. The adventure activities we do, they range from abseiling to bushwalking or canoeing. And a lot of the time we're actually, we're just going geocaching in the local neighbourhood. that gets young people outdoors doing something active where they're feeling an enjoyment from the activity and that they're able to regulate their body so that they're not feeling the stress that they normally have. So any of those activities help them to do that. And we have a wide range of things going on for young people. We've got young people with Asperger's and things like that, right through all of the other things that people might be aware of in terms of mental health challenges anyway, um, right out to some people who are hallucinating and hearing voices and things because the way their mind's been harmed by things earlier on. So quite a spectrum of things that we deal with but it all goes back to that the root cause was adversity in childhood that meant that they didn't develop the way that they should have and we try to fix that. Wow such a unique organization and all the programs that you are creating based on science thanks to your research work is truly remarkable. Could you please share with our audience 
what are some of the key challenges you have experienced in creating these programs? Yeah, sure. Um, well, apart from finding, making an income out of it, trying to keep the business afloat, and anybody who's run a small business, they know that the first few years can be really testing. We've gone through all of that. The other challenges were that the system of mental health that we've got in Australia anyway doesn't work, but it, it's difficult to have people think about things differently because a lot of people in mental health are, are paid to work in that job pretty much regardless of the benefits to the people that they're working with. So we're different in that case because we only get paid if people continue to come to us to buy our services. We're not like a government agency where you're going to get paid regardless of how many people you see. And not saying they don't work hard, they do. But what they're offering generally is a talk therapy approach. So often it's cognitive behavioural therapy or one of the derivations of that. Those sorts of things are not designed for young people. Young people are not just little adults. They operate differently. Their, their minds work differently. The way they connect in the world works differently. The key challenge for us has been trying to figure out how work with young people and not just thinking of them as younger adults and what are the things that work for them when talk doesn't work which it often doesn't and so we've really investigated the engagement piece of providing them with activities that are meaningful to them and trying to not buy into the standard things that people think are helpful like yoga is helpful mindfulness is helpful various other things are helpful but are they actually the best thing for our young people to do, particularly when they've got this adversity in childhood? So it's been interesting over the last few years testing different things with our staff to see what, what works. And really, it comes down to the simple things. That is, be connected with the young person and have them experience an adult who is safe, whereas in the past, the adults may not have been safe. So I think those are the challenges. Are trying to figure out how to do something that works for young people but is not necessarily just the same thing that's being repeated over and over and over in the system that, that is pretty clunky in Australia. A lot of young people, they start therapy or they go to therapy and they drop out really, really quickly. Some recent statistics from our leading mental health, youth mental health services, tell us that I think it's 36% of the young people that come in don't show up again after their first session. With us, we've got the engagement piece worked out really well. We've had, I think, three people over the last several years and over 10,000 sessions that we've run. Only three people amongst all of that have actually stopped their course of sessions early. So we're getting some wins, but it's also frustrating that the system doesn't seem like it wants to change despite us showing how it can. Wow, super interesting, all the data and the insights. I was checking today some information from a national study of mental health and well-being from 2022 that is saying that two in five Australians aged 16 to 85 years had experienced a mental disorder at some time in their life. Where do you believe social enterprises or charities fit into a recovery process and what opportunities have you identified for entrepreneurs? Yeah, so I see social enterprise in particular as being really innovative. Not many social enterprises start with a big cash flow from what I can see. And so 
we're also trying to change the world. We're trying to address those SDGs, sustainable development goals. So we start out with not a lot of money, um, lots of enthusiasm and a really strong sense of mission. And that, I think, means that we do things differently because we have to. And because the system is so clunky and doesn't like to do things differently, we've got the opportunity in social enterprise to do something different, to measure it, and then to show how it can be done again and again and again and again. Because government's not good at doing that. And that puts us in a position of being the change makers, providing we get the data, the measurement right, or the process right, we get the measurement behind it, and then we articulate how we can help more people or help other organisations help more people. So I think that's where social enterprise comes in to the mix. What can we do? Well, again, government, uh, which is where the bulk of mental health services come from, is private practice as well. But they're generally a bricks and mortar establishment. So there's a place where you go to to get therapy. What we found, though, is we were being asked, can we go to the client? And so we started doing that. And now we've realised that it actually works better than trying to get them to come to us. So we are out there in community doing outreach because we can, because we're small, we do what we want to do. Uh, whereas in government, it's large, everything's pre-funded. Government is well-funded to the future and well-planned into the future. But that means that they're not able to respond quickly when things happen, when there's opportunities come or when a good idea floats past. They're not able to do anything with that idea quite often. And so it's back to organisations like ours that go, oh, this is a good idea. Let's just give it a shot. We can do that tomorrow. Uh, we don't have to put six months planning into it and then a year to wait till it comes to budget and then train a workforce. And we can do this in the space of days and move really quickly. One of the benefits there is that when COVID came along for our organisation, we were able to adapt really quickly because everybody had to, and a lot of the work we were doing was already pretty good. I think that's organisationally, structurally, what the social enterprise sector can do in the mental health space is be innovative and try things. But I think we also are able to tailor to individual circumstances much better than large organisations do. And so each individual in our organisation works very closely with the young person or young people that they're allocated. And every intervention they do is different to the ones that they've done before. They're constantly creating new ideas and new processes. And social enterprise is good at doing that. My experience of the mental health is that the models of six sessions of this and on session two, you cover this topic and session three, you cover that topic. They're not individualised. They don't work very well. It's sometimes not much fun to do. I think, again, social enterprise can be innovative not just systemically, but with our individual services. Thanks so much, Graham. Very interesting and some great observations there. Just recently, Impact Boom has been proud to work with you on the Elevate Plus Accelerator. You just recently finished that program and you've come a long way. What were some of the key lessons from the program that will be valuable for other purpose-led entrepreneurs seeking to create impact? Thank you. Uh, we came into this process differently to many of the other social enterprises who are in the room who are all startups. So our organisation had been going for some time, for a few years, but we definitely needed some help. We also had this idea of expanding and beginning to train professionals 
and not just doing the work, but training other people to do the work. So the component of our enterprise that we were focusing on was starting a new section of the business to this registered training organisation. So the workshop was really good for us as an established organisation to get right some pieces that we hadn't in the past. And it was also really helpful for us to explore a new direction in the business as well. So things that we got directly were our marketing has improved. We've learned a lot in that space. Our business logic is a lot tidier than what it was. We understand investment types and how strategies to obtain investment. We know a lot more about the SDGs, the Sustainable Development Goals, and human rights, and that's really important in our work. I think the most uncomfortable thing for us was pitching at the end uh, of the three months of workshops and pitching in a very prepared kind of way, which will be really useful because we're going to convert that into a general elevator pitch for use elsewhere. Thank you so much, Graham, for your insights. My next question is, what inspiring projects have you come across recently which are creating positive social change? There were a few people in that Accelerate program who, who I thought have fantastic social enterprises. I particularly like Cameron Tolmy and his bush care business that he was setting up. And it's because it has relevance to our work and it helps people to engage with uh, restoration of natural environments in their local area and then record what they're doing and track the progress over time. Then that aggregates or comes together so that the program will be able to show the total benefit of a business that might have their staff involved in this or over a geographic area and show the benefit of unplanned, spontaneous, unorganised bush care. I think it's a fantastic idea. I also like that David Johnson's got some hampers that are going out to elderly people and veterans. And what I really liked about that was it's not just the hampers of food and the things that they need to get through the week in terms of cleaning products and stuff, which is the practical stuff. I really like that he was also matching up. Uh, if it was a veteran that was receiving these things, it would be a veteran that takes the hamper. If it's an elderly person getting it, it would be an older person who delivers the hamper. So that it's a way not just of providing the essentials, but providing a relationship that goes with it. I thought that was really clever, layered way of him running that. But heaps of others, I think, just to name one more, Renee Shea, who uh, has got a business where she's going to be empowering women as makers in their own life, in developing their careers by being on this social media kind of website that she's putting together where they can get access to coaching, they can get resources, they can have a community as well, where women who are hampered by this glass ceiling might be able to help each other and get some help from Renee so that they can get through that and we can see more powerful women in positions of leadership, which I think is a wonderful idea. And the thing that I really thought was clever was that for every person who buys a membership in this organisation, she was also gifting one of these uh, memberships to a young woman from a refugee background. And so everybody who's, who's paying to be part of her, her, her social enterprise and to develop their own career, they're also helping develop the career of a young woman who needs that extra help. I thought it was really, I thought all three of those things are really clever little add-ons, which I think social enterprises are well known for. Yeah, totally agree with you, Graham. 
there were amazing initiatives in this program. To finish off, what books would you recommend to our listeners? I would expect that often the books that the people you're interviewing for podcasts would recommend would be like business or leadership books, those sorts of things. So I'll offer two different ones that are not in that vein, that are more in the work that we're doing and useful because you know mental health is everybody's business. No one's untouched by this. So um, these may not be books that will help people develop their social enterprise in pragmatic terms, but it might help them develop social enterprises in terms of the human connection and that sort of thing. So the first is, it was a difficult read, to be honest. It's, the book is If Tears Were Prayers by Emma Sunshaw. And this is a book about a woman with dissociative identity disorder, which really is the worst case of that history of childhood adversity. It's a really interesting read, but what was good was that it showed you what it was like inside her mind to deal with all these things. And there's some certainly got some sad bits in it because of the history of what caused the problem. But it was more that lived, as close to a lived experience as a person is going to get or what it's like to be um, dealing with a mind that's been radically impacted by the experiences of childhood. The second, a lot easier to read in some ways, it's not as personal, is The Myth of Normal by Gabor Mate. Gabor Mate is a, a doctor and he also is looking at the mental health aspects of medicine, of people being physically ill and what or injured and how that relates to their psychology and what happened to them also early in their childhood. And The Myth of Normal gives us a bit of a roadmap of how we can make the world a better place from where it is now. And that very much goes in with the sustainable development goal. He's talking about uh, reorienting our entire society away from the things we think are normal now but aren't. And that is that people make live to make money, that some people deserve more success than others. And he really, I think, gives a very clear way that we can move away from the perils of liberalism and the patriarchy. So that second book is The Myth of Normal by Gabor Mate. Very interesting. All the resources and books mentioned in this podcast will be linked at the end of the article. That brings us to the end of our interview. And on behalf of Impact Boom, thank you so much for your generous insights and time. We just wish you all the best. You guys for putting the Accelerate program on. It's been really helpful. And I'm sure that past and future participants will be as enthusiastic as I am about recommending it for emerging social enterprises or social enterprises like ours, which are looking to uh, add something extra to their business. So thank you. Thank you so much, Brian. Thanks for listening to Impact Boom. You'll find links to the initiatives, people and resources mentioned in this podcast on impactboom.org. Please leave your comments below and remember, we'll be publishing fresh inspiration and insights to help you create positive impact every week on the website, Facebook page and Twitter.